Before we begin, just a warning. Some listeners may find some of what you're about to hear distressing. Also, there's some strong language. Last time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. He told me from the start, I haven't done it, I'm, I am innocent. So I said to them at one of the hearings, it's a way of getting those who are wrongly convicted to make a false confession. Because the threat is you stay longer than you otherwise would have to. Getting a conviction overturned in this country is a really uphill battle. In four different areas, there was DNA which did not belong to Andy. You know, these results are huge. Who is this unknown male whose DNA the Greater Manchester Police have been sitting on for nearly two decades? Whose is it? I think where she scratched her assailant. That's right, it's the fingernails scraping yeah. from her fingernails. I mean, that, to me, is, is shout-out-loud evidence. I mean, what, what, what do you want? And nobody ever saw you with a scratch on your face? No, because I didn't have any. It's insane. It just sounds insane. I'm with Andy Malkinson. He's chatting to me about how he hopes he's a step closer to clearing his name after a DNA breakthrough. Around the areas where the attacker had the most heavy contact. Andy left jail in December last year having been convicted of raping a woman in Greater Manchester back in 2004. His conviction was based solely on witness testimony, but DNA evidence now suggests a different man was there. Well, we need the Greater Manchester Police to be more cooperative in trying to track down who this unknown male's DNA is and finding the real perpetrator of this horrific crime. You're listening to 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story, a podcast brought to you by The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Dugan, a reporter at The Sunday Times. This is a series about how one man spent almost two decades in jail for a crime he says he didn't commit. Despite trying repeatedly to clear his name, he remains a convicted sex offender. But now we've uncovered new evidence which cast doubt on the verdict and the criminal justice process. I fought a long, hard fight and I'm not done yet. I won't consider myself free at all until I've cleared my name and the authorities recognise that I'm completely innocent. Nothing else will do. If you didn't commit this crime, someone did. And how much time do you spend thinking about that now, who that person might be? I don't dwell on it too much. That's for the police to find out. It could be any among a number of sexual offenders that were rung in by Crime Stoppers and they didn't investigate them at all. It's true that there were certain suspects Greater Manchester Police never followed up. The judge even said so during Andy's trial. In part four of this series, we heard how Andy spent longer in jail because he maintained his innocence and that a DNA breakthrough this year places an unknown male at the scene of the crime. Today, we'll hear how one half of a couple who were key witnesses now say they didn't want to testify against Andy. And I'll challenge the head of the organisation which holds the key to his chances of finally clearing his name. This is part five, Forced to Testify.
Hello. Oh, hi. Is that Deborah? Yeah. My name's Emily Dugan. I'm a journalist at the Sunday Times. I was just wanting to give you a free for a quick chat. Uh, what's about? It's about Andy Malkinson. Yeah. I think he used to live with you in around 2003. Yeah, he did. I don't know if you know he was recently released. Yeah, I did actually. I was quite worried the person I'm talking to is Deborah Hardman. Andy was staying with her and her husband John at their home in Salford in the weeks leading up to the rape, but had left before the attack. They'd fallen out after Andy had urinated on their sofa when drunk one night, and later the Hardmans threatened him, saying he hadn't paid for the damage. Deborah and John appeared in court effectively as character witnesses for the prosecution. When I asked Deborah about that, I was taken aback by what she said next. We were forced to go to court. Um, the police said that if we didn't turn up at court, there would be a warrant issued for us. So it was quite frightening for us, you know. So you didn't actually want to go to court then, or you weren't? Well, no, because I really didn't want to get involved. Quite a scary thing. No, we didn't want to. We was, they said that they would um, send a warrant for our arrest if we didn't. Um, active witnesses in the case. Why didn't you want to be involved? I really didn't think it was important for us to be witnesses. Um, I would imagine it would have been important if somebody witnessed the incident themselves rather than me going to court and saying, well, yeah, it was with us, um, we themselves, so this, that and the other, you know, when I just didn't think it was important. I must admit, this really wasn't what I'd expected to hear from Deborah. The police in this country have the option to ask a judge for a summons, which, if granted, means a witness must come to court. Failure to comply can lead to being arrested. But I'm cautious about taking Deborah completely at face value. After all, she and her husband both had criminal records and were described as known troublemakers by the judge. During the trial, Andy says they portrayed him as strange and weird. So I asked Deborah what Andy was like when he stayed with them back in 2003. We got on all right with him, everyone. He liked the kids and stuff. Kids got on all right with him. He was really laid back. He didn't seem... It was just when he had a drink, I think. He just seemed a bit strange, but I think that goes for everybody, really. Was there ever any indication to you that he was capable of anything violent? No, not at all. No. I've spoken to Andy since he's been released. It sounds like you guys fell out a bit. Is it fair to say that? Yeah, that's right. Did you feel you had a kind of animosity towards him or what was your feeling towards him after that time? It wasn't a major thing, you know, but because it was my home and obviously bringing somebody into the house, I mean, we'd been, been here for a few weeks and then I just thought I'd had enough, you know. A lot of this is... Andy sort of has a feeling somehow that he got fitted up in some way. And I guess he questions, because you guys are character witnesses, I guess maybe he's questioning whether that in some way comes back to, to you guys. I mean, what, what would you say to that? Not at all, no. Not at all. I think somebody needs to look into uh, GMP, to be perfectly honest with you. There was no DNA to put him there at the scene. From what I know now, I'm going to have to cut it short, you know, because I need to take a phone call. Oh, don't worry, that's fine. I put the phone down and was sitting with my producer, Will. How are you feeling right now? 
I was expecting, having heard Andy's account of staying with them, having known that in the court documents, you know, the judge talks about the animosity between them. I was expecting somebody to sound really angry. And actually, she sounded all right. You kind of caricature people, I guess. Yeah, you don't mean to, but when, especially when you've been trying to speak to someone and you've got a sense in your head of what they might say. And it certainly didn't quite fit with the characterisation from Andy's account. Now, very obviously, that may be because it's a journalist calling them up. She's written about their doubts about the case. That may be a factor. But it was interesting. It was a very different call to the one I was expecting. Some of what Deborah Hardman said about Andy matched what she'd said before in an article after the trial. But this time, she was very keen to point out that overall she felt she and her family got on with him. She didn't think he was capable of violence and denied their testimony was driven by animosity towards him. But maybe the most interesting thing of all, Deborah says she and her husband were reluctant to go to court. We asked Greater Manchester Police whether they'd threatened to arrest the Hardmans if they wouldn't take part in the trial. GMP didn't respond to this point. I've repeatedly requested an interview with the force during this series, but so far they've declined. They have, however, sent us a statement, read here by my producer, Will. GMP is aware that Mr Malkinson's legal representatives have submitted an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is currently under consideration. GMP has appointed a senior officer to undertake a review of the case in response to representations made by Mr Malkinson's legal representatives. GMP is assisting and cooperating with the CCRC. I'm watching some footage of a news report from March 1991. Six men walk out of the Old Bailey, London's Central Criminal Court. Crowds are gathered, held back by police. One of the men steps forward and grabs a microphone, quivering with righteous anger. Justice! I don't think them people in there have got the intelligence, nor the honesty to spell the word. Never mind dispense it! Sixteen years earlier, in 1975, these men had been convicted of the Birmingham pub bombings in which 21 people were killed. The attack was attributed to the IRA. The accused said they'd been forced to give false confessions. But it wasn't until a lot later, the day of the footage I'm watching, that the Court of Appeal declared the convictions unsafe and unsatisfactory, and they were quashed. Good evening. Amid scenes of exaltation, the Birmingham Six walked free from the Old Bailey this afternoon. The case of the Birmingham Six is arguably Britain's best-known miscarriage of justice. We don't know for sure whether Andy has been wrongfully convicted, but there's a direct link between the way events unfolded then and what's happening to Andy now. Back in 1991, if you wanted your conviction to be looked at by the Court of Appeal again, it had to be referred directly by the Home Secretary. After the Birmingham Six case, a commission was set up to look at the handling of potential miscarriages of justice. It led to the establishment of the Criminal Cases Review Commission in 1997, this body took over responsibility from the Home Secretary so that the government no longer had the power to decide what cases should be heard again. In May this year, Andy's case was sent to the Criminal Cases Review Commission by his legal team. I'm Emily Bolton. I'm the director of the Law Practice and Charity Appeal. What we do is we fight miscarriages of justice and demand reform of the system that led to those occurring in the first place. 
We've heard from Emily's colleague, James Burley, the investigator, throughout this series. Appeal has been looking into Andy's case for the past four years. The overriding emotion I experience is frustration. Frustration at, at, at a system that is in denial about its mistakes. It's like Emily is a tenacious character. She's striking, with glasses, a backcomb bun, and she has a bit of a Helena Bonham Carter look about her. She's moved about a fair bit. Growing up in England, she also lived in Australia, before settling in the United States. I'm an American qualified and trained lawyer. I'm now a solicitor in this country, but certainly it's everything that I learned in the American criminal justice system that's made me realise what is wrong with the one we have here in England and Wales. 21 years ago, Emily set up Innocence Project New Orleans, a charity providing free legal representation, which has helped secure the release of 39 prisoners. Emily moved back to the UK in 2004, the same year Andy was sentenced to life in jail. I assumed in this country there was absolutely no problem with wrongful convictions because we'd seen so many high-minded English lawyers coming over to the Deep South trying to rescue America from the death penalty and from the racism that infects the system there. But I soon learned that far from having solved the problem in the wake of the Irish cases, the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, and the creation of the Criminal Cases Review Commission that was supposed to address wrongful convictions in this country. In fact, wrongful convictions were still occurring, and not only were they occurring, they were not being rectified as a matter of urgency. What are the obstacles you face if you want to try and find out whether somebody's been wrongfully convicted? Well, the first obstacle is you don't have a transcript of the trial, so you have no idea what witnesses actually said. Uh, Second obstacle is you don't have access to the police files, so you can't benefit from the investigation that was done close to the time of the crime. And we don't have proper standards for defence lawyering in this country. We don't uh, require our defence lawyers to investigate cases on behalf of the defendant. And the fourth obstacle is we can't talk to jurors. We can't find out what went on in the jury room and what mattered to jurors and what didn't. Some of these are clearly issues in Andy's case. In particular, getting access to police files. The Criminal Cases Review Commission does have the power to access police files and the right to investigate. But Emily says ultimately it's failing those it should be helping. While the CCRC was set up to investigate suspected miscarriages of justice, it's not investigating them. So what you really need is an investigator to investigate your case before you send it to the CCRC. Now that investigator could be a lawyer, it could be a law practice like ours, but really what you need is the facts investigated. Shouldn't it be that they people don't need a lawyer? If the CCRC was functioning properly, wouldn't shouldn't it be the case that they would just do what you do, effectively? They would investigate? Yeah, if the CCRC was functioning properly, it would do what we're doing, investigate, but it would have access to all the documents, which we can't do because we're not allowed to. It's not just appeal that's critical of the CCRC's performance. In February this year, a commission set up by a parliamentary group found the CCRC to be too deferential to the appeal courts and that it lacked transparency with its applicants. They also said it's underfunded. But Emily feels despite this underfunding, the CCRC, even when external lawyers do some groundwork for them, do not use their authority. They are not using their powers to obtain the documents that the lawyers have identified as being crucial to the investigation. That is what I would fault the CCRC for. As a government-funded body, the CCRC can request case files from police who in turn are legally obliged to provide them. I think culturally they haven't grasped that 
miscarriages of justice happen because people make mistakes. They're trying to resolve miscarriages of justice without pointing a finger at anybody being at fault. But someone's been hurt, someone's been killed. Police often get tunnel vision. They're under huge pressure to close the case. You have to be prepared to take a critical look at the police. And the only way you can do that is by gathering up their whole file. You cannot simply ask the police whether or not they did a good job or ask for one or two documents. You have to review the whole file. We heard in part two of this series that one of the first things Appeal did in Andy's case was ask Greater Manchester Police for the files. When they got them, James found a single piece of paper which led to the revelation that two so-called honest witnesses weren't honest at all. They had 38 convictions between them. That evidence, along with new DNA of an unknown male on the victim's clothes, was sent to the CCRC five months ago. This is Andy's third application, On average, it takes around eight months for a decision to be made. I'm Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. We get in the region of 1,600 applications a year. Typically, we refer 5%. We're now at 7%. So we disappoint a lot of people. That's Helen Pitcher the chairman of the Criminal Cases Review Commission. She's talking to me on a video call from her study in North London. She has short pale hair and thick-rimmed glasses. I will always fight the corner of the organisation because I think we do do a good job. We are fallible. We will get it wrong from time to time. My role is to make sure when we do, we stick our hands up as soon as possible. I wanted to put something to her that I've repeatedly come across during the making of this series and my reporting on miscarriages of justice. Why does it often take multiple applications to the CCRC before a case gets referred to the Court of Appeal? I did a Freedom of Information request earlier this year, which showed there are 90 cases where the CCRC has previously declined to refer the case to the Appeal Court, but then did so following you know, a later application. And in some of these cases, it takes two, three, even four applications to the CCRC before it's referred to the Court of Appeal. That really suggests that you only get further if you get all the new evidence yourself, rather than saying, there are some real inconsistencies in my case. I'm going to go to the miscarriage of justice body and say, please do the digging. Please find out what's gone wrong here. We do do all the digging into available information at the time. And as you say, sometimes people come back to us a couple of years later with something new. And when we send people our statement of reasons, which sadly we can't publish, but they can, we make it very plain where we've got to in the the investigation and why we've reached our conclusions. But when you look at, at what happened in Andy's case, each time there was new evidence. It was either an investigative journalist or it was his lawyers that found it. The things that were uncovered at at expense, his lawyers had to judicially review GMP in order to get details of the witnesses' criminal records. You could have simply asked them. I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did. 
But as far as we were concerned, we were given all of the evidence that we asked for. If you had asked for the criminal records of the key witnesses that were presented as honest in court, then you would have known that they had dozens of criminal records that were hidden from the court. If they were hidden from the court, how would we have got it? By asking, in the same way that Andy's lawyers have said, something doesn't add up in this case. And then they've asked GMP, can you tell us if these witnesses had any criminal records? They refused. And it was only by judicially reviewing them that that information came out. But of course, my point is, you could have just asked them. If Andy's lawyers asked for it and didn't get it, there's every chance we asked for it and didn't get it. Because my team have assured me that they literally followed up every line of inquiry and asked for all the information that would help if this was a referable case at that time. What I mean is you have powers they didn't. So although when they asked it, GMP could say no, if you ask it, they can't say no if they have it. And if they did, then they were breaking the law. I I don't know. I would need to look into that. The CCRC hasn't been able to provide us with any more information on Andy's case. They told us that while their review is ongoing, it's not appropriate to comment on the merits of it. But they hadn't realised that below their email with this official response was a chain of internal messages sent to us by mistake. In it, staff admitted they couldn't find any sign they ever asked for the criminal records of the two witnesses during Andy's last review. This is particularly worrying because Andy had specifically asked the CCRC to look into how the police dealt with those witnesses. So you'd think one of the first things you'd do is ask to see their criminal records. It was only after we told them we'd seen those internal emails that they confirmed they had in fact never asked GMP for the criminal records, saying their last review was focused on the way Andy was identified, rather than if the two witnesses were lying. I need more funding for a couple of things. One is more staff. There seems to be agreement that the CCRC is underfunded to do the job it's charged with. And if you don't have a lawyer working on your application, the chance of getting your case referred is extremely low. One of the issues we have is only 10% of our applicants are represented. Justice favours the wealthy, basically. <laughs> um, arguably, although there are some very good, you know, the likes of Appeal, the Innocence Projects, Inside Justice, they do a lot of really good pro bono work supporting people. But my big question is, should it have to be pro bono? And I don't think it should. So if only one in 10 applicants have legal representation and the CCRC don't have the resources to investigate, who's looking out for people who may be wrongly convicted? More troubling, in the last 10 years, CCRC stats show that one in three cases which do ultimately reach the appeal court have a lawyer meaning you're three times more likely to get there if you have legal help. It had been a couple of months since I'd last seen Andy. He left Grimsby and moved to another seaside town. I drove to see him with my producer, Will. From your point of view, investigating this, how's it been over the last month, month and a half? I've had a bit more time just to put in more calls and track down a few more people. It's been quite intense suddenly feeling like we were making a little bit of progress getting getting to speak to the Hardmans. There's one thing that 
is still playing on my mind a lot and I've no idea whether we'll get to the bottom of it the suspects at the time my understanding one of this man's colleagues said that he had come to work with a significant scratch on his face and the police didn't then interview him until October and bearing in mind the attack happened in July clearly by the time police interviewed him there would have been no scratch I'm now looking into trying to confirm it independently. Remember, the victim said she caused a deep scratch to her attacker before becoming unconscious. And he never had any marks on his face. All I know is that this man has since died. And I'm hoping that we can track down some of his surviving relatives and see if they will corroborate that he was a suspect see if they can give us any more information at all. And of course, just because somebody's a suspect, I mean, there were many, many suspects, including lots of people who had previous convictions for sexual offences. So I'm not saying this necessarily is the answer at all. It's just something I'd like to explore. Soon we arrived at Andy's. I wanted to let him hear what Deborah Hardman had said. So what would he make of the telephone conversation? I was just wanting to give you a free for a quick chat. Yeah, what's that about? It's about Andy Malkinson. So I can't compare forensically what she's saying now no. to what she's saying then. No. But what I can get is tone. And from the Take a Break interview and from the summary that the judge gives, the tone seems different. She certainly didn't have that demeanour in, in the courts during my trial. She was trying really hard to make me look like um, a very strange or weird individual, which was the police's uh, narrative. It's a my word against hers thing, you know. The conversation then moved on. I wanted to find out what Andy knew about this other suspect from the time that I had a lead on. It's worth reiterating here that there were many suspects at the time, and this is just one of them. I received some documentation long after I was convicted. It was a very haphazard affair. It was all mixed up and shuffled up. It was like it was designed for me not to make sense of, but I slowly did piece it together with Bob Woffenden. Bob Woffenden is the investigative journalist we heard about in part two of this series, who died in 2018. He was a big supporter of Andy, and the two of them got hold of some police files. One piece really flew out at me, um... An anonymous caller had named somebody. It was a work colleague, and she said he'd turned up at work the following Monday after that weekend with a scratch on his face, and furthermore, he resembles the description of the attacker. And underneath it, it said, is a relative of the Hardmans. I was just astonished. I thought, what's going on? Um, I mean, but the whole thing was just... I couldn't get my head around anything that was happening. I mean, what, what was going on there? Hang on a minute. This is a suspect. 
Uh, he's been overlooked by the police. They didn't bother checking up until I was long in remand and close to trial. If he did bear scratches, as the Crime Stoppers anonymous caller said, then they would have healed by then, I guess. You know, he had a couple of months to heal. Now, just because a relative of the Hardmans was a suspect doesn't necessarily mean anything. But Andy has always been convinced that there was some wider conspiracy to him ending up in jail. And if he's innocent, it's easy to understand why he might feel this way after 17 years in prison. The Hardmans were described as known troublemakers in the area. So it could be that simply by being associated with a family like that, he would have been brought to the police's attention. In fact, we know that's what happened. Remember in part two of this series, the two police officers who were first on the scene after the woman was raped were the same two officers that saw Andy on a routine traffic stop when he was with the Hardman's son. They remembered him from that incident. I wanted to speak to someone who knew this suspect, alleged to have turned up to work with a scratch on his face. A few days later, I managed to get a phone number. Hello? I'm looking into a historic police investigation in Little Holton that happened, I mean, nearly 20 years ago now. And your former husband was spoken to as part of it. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I remember that, yes. Next time, the final part of 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. The relationship from the beginning, as soon as we moved in together, it became pretty violent. The ex-wife of one suspect speaks for the first time. They said that they had someone for it, but they had to follow all lines of inquiry so that they didn't seem like they were being biased. And tells me, when police came to question him, it only lasted around 20 minutes. And I catch up with Andy for one last time. Wasted the only life I'll ever have, and I can't really come to terms with it. You've been listening to part five of 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story, with me, Emily Dugan. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is written by me and Will Rowe. It's produced by Will Rowe, with assistance from Brenna Dardov. The executive producers are Poppy Damon and Lynn Jones, with original music and sound design by Tom Birchall. If you've been affected by any issues in this podcast, there are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description. And if you have any information that you want to share on Andy's case, or remember anything from the time, you can contact me directly. My details are also in the description notes.